Amen and amen. Father, we thank you that we serve an omnipotent, victorious God. That, Lord, nothing the enemy can throw at you will diminish you, will defeat you in any way. And because we are in you, Lord Jesus, and you won the victory on Calvary's cross, and three days later stepping from the tomb alive, we, because we're in you, have that same victory. So, Lord, thank you. We ask that you would now bless this message for your glory. May your spirit be our teacher. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, good morning again. Can I have you guys all turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 17? If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. And to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. We have uh, recently entered into chapter 17, and as such, we are standing on holy ground. What do I mean? Well, there's a lot of Christian leaders, pastors, and scholars that consider this chapter to be the holy of holies of the gospel. The holy of holies was that place in the temple where only the high priest was allowed to go, and any, only then once a year on the Feast of Yom Kippur, the place where God was said to dwell uh, above the, chair, uh, the mercy seat, uh, over the Ark of the Covenant. And Jesus, I believe, has entered into this place uh, in a symbolic way in John 17. He's the great high priest. He's going to and has entered this holy of holies in heaven when he ascended back to his father. But we, while he was on the earth, during his earthly ministry, we uh, have been invited to come along with him uh, into the holy of holies as he communes with his father in a very intimate and deeply personal way. Now, to recap, Jesus and his disciples, minus Judas, who was at that very moment uh, uh, was uh, take, uh, working out his betrayal of Jesus, so he wasn't with them, but Jesus and his disciples now have uh, finished the Passover meal, they've left the upper room, and now they're on their way to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus will spend the next few hours in prayer, before he's arrested, tried, and then crucified. Now, along the way, Jesus continued a teaching that he started in the upper room, a final discourse directed at his closest men in preparation for them taking over the ministry when he would die, rise from the dead, and ascend back to his father. So really, in just a short time, they're going to be taking over, and by extension, all of us, who are his disciples, uh, have taken over his ministry, the one he began. He entrusted it to us, the Great Commission. And so now we are in, going into all the world and have gone into all the world through the Internet and radio and uh, all kinds of other ways uh, sharing the gospel. But this prayer uh, is an incredible prayer, and uh, it's divided into three main parts, where Jesus prays for himself, verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for his disciples, those that had followed him for three and a half years of his ministry, verses 6 to 19. And then Jesus expands this prayer to pray for all believers uh, down through the centuries, which would include all of us here this morning, and that is covered in verses 20 to 26. So we're in that first part where Jesus is praying for himself. Let's read verse 1 again. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify 
you. Now, guys, I'll be honest with you, I had something completely different in mind uh, for today's message. In fact, I had most of it done. And as I was uh, going over the message before I printed it out, I looked at verse 1 again, and the Holy Spirit just riveted my attention on one word, our, our. And I thought, all right, Lord, you want me to develop a whole message based on this one word. Now, if you know me, that's not hard to do for me, all right? But I do believe this. I do believe there's something so important in this concept that we really should take today to look at it, and then we'll continue on. But let me just draw your attention once again to the statement by our Lord, Father, the hour has come. Now, I want you to be aware that all the way through Jesus' earthly ministry, especially as recorded in John's Gospel, we get the definite impression that he was living according to a divine time clock, a divine schedule. We constantly see him saying things, saying things like, my hour has not yet come, and my time is at hand, right? I mean, Jesus' whole life was planned out in eternity past by the Father, not the least of which John 5, verse 36 tells us that, but many other places. Jesus' whole life and ministry was planned out in eternity past before he was ever incarnated into Mary's womb and was born a human being on the earth. I mean, everywhere he would go, when he would get there, who he would come in contact with, the miracles he would perform, everything was planned out by his father before he ever came to the earth. And Jesus faithfully, faithfully adhered to the father's schedule. It's very clear as we read the Gospels once again that Jesus was on a divine timetable. He, and he never missed an appointment, right? The Bible says he was born when? In the fullness of time. I did a whole message on that concept. This was the perfect time for Jesus to be born, when he was born. Rome was in power. Rome had one of the big things that Rome did was it paved, it was very big on all roads leading to Rome, right? Which gave great way of, of access for the gospel to spread. It was incredible how God orchestrated the time Jesus came to the earth. It was in the fullness of time, according to God's divine schedule, right? The Bible says he died when his time came. We're reading about, reading about this right now. And he rose from the, dead, from, from the dead on the third day, according to the what? Scriptures, according to what God had prophesied in time past. Everything Jesus did he was on a divine schedule. And of course, we know he's going to return right on schedule, right? Some of us think he's, kind of, he's late, Lord. Aren't you a little late? No, no. He's not late. He's always right on time, okay? And, um, and the signs are indicating that time for his coming is getting near. But guys, again, Jesus lived according to a divine plan a divine schedule that the Father had ordained in eternity past. And listen, this is the point. So are we. We are on a divine schedule as well. This is the point I felt like the Holy Spirit really wanted to bring out. We are on a divine schedule. As, what do I mean? Well, I'll read it to you. You know it. Ephesians 2, first of all, eight, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, 
that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not the result of our works, lest any should boast in heaven we deserve to be there. But we often then stop there. We don't go on to verse 10, which says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, listen, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In eternity past, long before we were ever born, God knew us, and God ordained that our life was to be lived in such a way as to bring him glory by doing the works he had planned in eternity past that we do. Very important. Again, God has a plan for all of our lives as his people. A plan that will only be fulfilled if we live our Christian, Christian lives, listen, under the control and leading of the Holy Spirit. And that's Christianity 101, but we need to get it out there. We need to say it. I think too many Christians never fulfill the plan of God for their lives because they are not sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they put their head down every morning and they charge through their day doing what they want, when they want, and with whom they want. Not only will this result in a lack of fruit in their walk with God, but it's, sure, it's a sure way to be overcome and defeated by the world. Guys, there is only victory in the Christian life when we are in the will of God. That's when Christians fall, because they're not where God wants them to be. They're not operating in the will of God, and they're going places they shouldn't go, hanging with people they shouldn't hang with, and the result is they fall. Victory is not, in the Christian life, is not so deep and profound that we barely can understand it. It's simply going where God wants us to go and not going where he doesn't want us to go, just being in the will of God. I mean, listen, when we are where God wants us to be, when we are in the place he wants to lead our lives to, well, that will be a place of victory and blessing. I, I think of the children of Israel. And I don't mean to confuse because some people after first service came up and said, what, what did you mean? Okay. If you think of the children of Israel as kind of a, an illustration of all of us who have gotten saved. They were in, enslaved in Egypt, right? Egypt in Scripture is a type of the world. So they were in bondage in the world, so to speak. And what did God do? He raised up a deliverer, namely Moses, and through the blood of the Lamb, they were led out of Egypt through the Red Sea, which Paul says was a symbolized water baptism, into the wilderness, right? Now, they, were supposed, they weren't supposed to remain in the wilderness too long. Uh, it was only an 11-day journey from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, the border of the Promised Land. Sure, before that, God had ordained that they build the tabernacle and ordained the priesthood and make the garments. So it was about a year uh, before the Lord said, it's time to move out now. Should have been 11 days from that point into the promised land. But you remember, they sent in the 12 spies. 10 were not worth so, so much. Uh, and they brought back an evil report. And so God's people uh, listened to the 10 evil spies, not to the 10 faithful spies, Joshua and Caleb. And so God drove them back out into the wilderness where they wandered for 39 more years, right? What does the wilderness represent? It represents carnal Christianity. Egypt, the world. The wilderness, carnal Christianity. Why does it represent carnal Christianity? I think Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 
brings this out. Because in the wilderness, they murmured, they complained, they never trusted God. Uh, and, and that's what carnal Christianity is all about. Murmuring, complaining, not walking in faith, so on and so forth. What does the promised land represent? I just heard a Christian song just the other day. I'm going to someday cross over through the river, and I'm going to wind up in heaven. That's been uh, memorialized. The children of Israel passing through the Jordan into the promised land is, you know, heaven. Promised land represents heaven someday. Well, they had wars in, in the promised land. I'm not going to have, and you're not going to have wars in heaven. No, the promised land doesn't represent heaven. It represents here on earth the life of the Spirit. That, pla that place where you're in the perfect will of God for your life. Where you're moving in the Spirit. You're, you're sensitive to the Spirit's leading, right? The promised land was a place of victory, blessing, and fruitfulness. Just like a Christian who is walking in the Spirit, who is in that perfect place that God wants for their lives, in obedience, in the Word, in fellowship, moving in the power of the Spirit to do the work of God. That's a place of blessing, uh, fruitfulness, and victory as well. And that's what we have to understand. When Israel was in the Promised Land, it symbolized they were in the center of God's will. Now, they didn't always operate like a Spirit-filled group of people, but I'm just saying for the sake of illustration. That's what the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is, is presenting to us. When they were out of the promised land, when they had sinned and got into, a, into, a adult, uh, into immorality and idolatry, God took them out. Uh, you know, Northern Kingdom to, uh, to uh, uh, my mind just went blank, Northern Kingdom to Assyria, and then Southern Kingdom to Babylon. When they were out of the land, you know, uh, they weren't being blessed. God was still with them. But it was only when they were in that promised land that, and they operated in that place that they were really blessed. We have a promised land of sorts. What is it? It's the great and precious promises God has given us in his word. And when we operate in those promises, when we take them by faith to our heart and say, God, you, I don't deserve this, but you promised this to me. That you're going to supply all my needs according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That if I will not live at the level of, of the, the world, but live at the level of your kingdom, your righteousness, that you'll take care of me and my family and provide everything we need in the physical. And so on and so forth. You can get whole little books that are called the promises of God, right? And if you get one, you read through it, that's your promised land. Great and precious promises, right? Now here's the thing. While children of Israel were in the wilderness, they had some victories. They, you can read about it. They had a few against uh, Sihon, Og, uh, and, and some others, King Sihon, King Og, and so, so on. Um, but their victories were far and few between. Here's the thing. I'm not saying that carnal Christians who are kind of in the wilderness in their Christian walk never see a victory. But although they see a victory once in a while, would you rather have victory once in a while or victory every day of your Christian life? That's what the difference between the wilderness and the promised land of the life of the Spirit is all about. Remember the context. Guys, context is everything, right? As we said when we started chapter 17, Jesus had ended his farewell address, his farewell teaching to his disciples with a shout of victory at the end of chapter 16 when he said, I have overcome the world. Past tense. Remember in Greek we said if something is a sure thing, even though it hasn't already happened yet, it's put in the past tense, right? 
We have been glorified, Romans 8. No, we haven't, not yet. In the mind of God is a done deal. So he puts it in the past tense. You know, we were predestined, we were uh, you know, called, we were justified, we were glorified. Well, I'm all those things, but not glorified yet. But in the mind of God, done deal. Just like Jesus said, I have overcome the world, past tense, done deal. Done deal. But in this context, guys, the world, the Greek word is cosmos, and it doesn't refer to the planet Earth or to nature or ecology or that kind of thing. It refers to the fallen world system that is controlled by the devil and which is in rebellion against God. That system we were delivered out of, but is always trying to pull us back into. That's spiritual warfare. The devil is trying to get you to love the world as much as or more than God Almighty. Because if he can get you to love the world, he can drag you back under the control of the world. Right? Didn't John say this? Everything that is in the world, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of this fallen world system. And this world system is passing away. But those who do the will of God, they're going to abide forever. And that's the idea, right? But this is spiritual warfare at its core. Are we going to love the Lord more or the flesh and the world more? Because whatever we love more, well, whatever our, where our heart is, that's going to, you know, whatever we love, that's where our heart's going to be. And so on. So when Jesus cried out, I have overcome the world, he was telling us that if you and I understand the victory he was about to secure in just a few days, he was going to die in a few hours but rise from the dead three days later. If you and I will understand the victory he was about to secure and apply the truths revealed by our Savior in this profound prayer, we apply these things into our lives, listen, it would enable all of us to be overcomers as well. Jesus, I have overcome the world. And he's basically saying now, here's how you overcome the world. First and foremost, by putting our faith in Jesus, if you're not a Christian. And one of the profound principles that we glean right up front is that being an overcomer, listen, is directly linked to walking in the Spirit, or in other words, to being sensitive to where the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, is working in trying to lead us to that place because we need to be where he is. I was telling first service, too many Christians, too many ministries figure out what they want to do for the Lord and they go for it and then they're praying, well, now, Lord, come on over and join us and bless what we're doing. doesn't work that way. God knows what he wants to do. God's got a will. God's got a, a plan. He knows where he's working or where he wants to work. And the issue is we need to find out what he's doing, where he's going, where he's working, because that's where we want to be. Because then it's fruitful. Then it's victorious. Then there's blessing, right? I mean, didn't Jesus say this in John 12, 26? If anyone serves me, talking to his disciples, let him what? Follow me. And where I am there, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. How? With victory and blessing. So many Christians are fruitless and defeated, and they think God has not kept his word to them, that God has failed in some way. It's like when Joshua uh, and the children of Israel got the snot kicked out of them by Ai after they beat the toughest kid on the block, you know, uh, you know Jericho, right? 
They said, what did Joshua do? Fell on his face and blamed God. Basically, Lord, you let us down. You, you, you promised us we'd have victory, and here we got defeated. 36 of our guys were killed. What did God say to jo Joshua? Get up. I have not failed Israel. Israel has broken what I had said. They've taken some of the accursed things and brought them into their tent. And you're not going to stand against your enemies until you walk in obedience to all that I have said. Very important, right? But let me just say this. All right, we need to be where God wants us to be, where he's leading us to be, right? But here's the thing. It's not just being where God wants us to be. It's being there at the time God wants us to be there. You say, well, you're confusing me now. Well, well, bear with me, okay? Being where God wants us to be is one thing. Great. But you've got to be there when God wants you to be there. Now, I'll give you an example. Jesus, at one point in his ministry took his guys up to Samaria. Now, no self-respecting Jew went to Samaria because they were, they were half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile. And so the Jews despised them in, in uh, Judea. Um, but Jesus loved them. And before the foundation of the world, the Father had penciled into the Son's docket an appointment. And again, Jesus never missed his, an appointment. So he tells the guys, we must go up to Samaria. We, we got to go up to Samaria. So he sits down by the well of Sychar and just waits. The other, his disciples go out, off to buy food. And in the course of time, here comes a woman to draw water. It was high noon. We've talked about this. Very hottest part of the day. Why did she go at the very hottest part of the day when women usually went to draw water in the early morning and in the evening when it was cooler? Because she was an outcast. She was an outcast. And she was the town loose woman. Been married and divorced five times, living with a guy. And nobody trusted her. Nobody wanted her around, right? But Jesus loved her. And he sits down by this well, and here she comes. She didn't know when she got up that morning she had an appointment with God. Isn't that how God works? I don't know how you got saved. But a lot of times people wake up one minute, one morning, by the end of the day, they're children of God. Because God had a plan and in the course of time, he unfolded that plan and brought it to fruition. And in our case, we got saved, right? But Jesus was where God, the Father wanted him to be at the very moment God, the Father wanted him to be there. He said, now that, well, this sounds difficult. I mean, how, how do I do all this? you got to be in communion with the Holy Spirit. You, you have, and believe me, when you cultivate a, just a, a practical, intimate walk with God. The Holy Spirit inside of you is going to get your attention. And He will lead you. Sometimes you're, you know, we have things to do during the course. We have jobs. We have chores. We have things we, we have to do. And we might be going over here one day, and, and this has happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you. The Holy Spirit stops and goes, don't, don't go over there. Go over here. He stopped me from doing something one time told me to go to the hospital. Walk in the hospital, I, I, I came in contact with some person who was in, in, in the hospital bed there, witnessed to him, they got saved. That was just an incredible experience. We have to be sensitive to the leading of God's Spirit because he's got a time for every purpose under heaven. And I got ahead of myself. 
want to quote that a little later, but here. <laughs> now, the devil knows that we as Christians are on a divine timetable if we will be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So he's going to try to use anybody he can to get us off of that timetable. He'll even try to use those people who are closest to us so that we don't operate under God's divine schedule. Um, what do I mean? Well, you're in the neighborhood. Turn to John 7. Now, the background is that Jesus' half-brothers did not believe in him initially. He had four half-brothers. We know that because we know their names from Matthew chapter 13. Initially, they didn't believe in the Lord. After he died and rose from the dead, two of them at least, two of the brothers, James and Jude, got saved. How do I know that? Because they wrote epistles. They wrote the epistle of James and the epistle of Jude. I hope the whole family got saved. He had sisters. We don't know how many that was. He had four brothers. But initially, they didn't believe in him. They thought, what is with you? Claim to be the Messiah. That's rich. You know, who do you think you are? And so at one point in John 7, his half-brothers um, tried to get him to conduct his ministry on their timetable instead of on the Father's timetable. We see in, in this in chapter 7 where they're chiding him. Imagine chiding the Lord. Where they're chiding him, uh, challenging him, even daring him to go to Jerusalem and declare himself openly as Messiah when his time had not yet come for him to do that. And so he said to them, verse 3, uh, they said to him, I'm, I'm sorry, verse 3, depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing, for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Here's what they're saying. You're, you're, you're claiming that you're the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. Well, what are you doing here in the backwoods, Galilee? I mean, if you're really the Messiah, why don't you go into the big city? Go to Jerusalem, you know, with a lot of hoopla and fanfare and do a lot of miracles and show everybody that you're truly the Messiah. What are you staying here for in, the, in, in this you know, rural backwoods country? Now, of course, John tells us in verse 1 of chapter 7 why Jesus was staying away from Jerusalem. He tells us because the Jews, and that's way of, John's way of saying the Jewish religious leadership, okay? Because the Jewish religious leadership sought to kill him. Which is why the Lord Jesus responded to his half-brother's challenge, My time has not yet come, verse 6. Again, giving us guys the clear impression that he was living according to a very specific, definite timetable. And he didn't want to needlessly provoke his enemies to try to kill him before the appointed time by his father. But then notice what he said to them. And this is really, what we're, really where I want to camp for the rest of the morning. Okay? Uh, this is where I really want to zero in on. Uh, verse 6 again, Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but listen, your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. I want you to, to look at verse 6 again. Jesus said, my time has not yet come. Listen, but your time is always ready. 
In saying that, Jesus was saying to them, my life is being lived according to a divine schedule, according to the sovereign will of my Father in heaven. But your lives are not on any such schedule. By saying this, the Lord Jesus was alluding to the fact that an unbeliever's life isn't being lived according to God's schedule or God's program. Guys, the unbeliever wanders through life without a sense of eternal. That's the key word. Remember that. The unbeliever wanders through life without a sense of eternal purpose and direction. Paul the Apostle mentions this very clearly in, uh, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, if you turn there quickly. I'll just read you the first three verses, Ephesians 2. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Talking about to believers there in Ephesus, but to all of us, right? At one time we were all dead in trespasses and sins, but the Lord through the gospel and our opening our hearts to Christ made us alive, right? We were born of the Spirit. But uh, he made you alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, verse 2, in which you once walked. Hold on to that word according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now, now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Guys, the word walked in verse 2 is a Greek word that should be translated meandered, meandered. Meander is a word that carries with it the idea of walking without purpose. Walking without purpose. You know, usually if a person is walking to a destination, um, they're going somewhere. They're walking with purpose. They're looking straight ahead. It's obvious they have their eyes fixed on something. There's a certain gate to their steps, right? It tells you they have somewhere to go, that they have some place in mind where they have to be. When you see a person meandering, you get the impression they're not really going anywhere in particular. They're walking down the street, looking around. What a nice day. Oh, I like the way that building is. Oh, that's nice. Uh, stopping to look in the store windows, right? You see a person doing this, you realize we're not really going anywhere. They're kind of wandering uh, down the street. One man said, one man, not me, one man said, it takes me five minutes to walk from one end of the mall to the other. It takes my wife all day. <laughs> That's the difference. Be honey, I didn't say that. I don't care how long you take to walk through, I'll be right with you. You don't, live, you don't 43 years of marriage if you, without, okay. But... But guys, that's the difference between walking with purpose and then meandering. So <laughs> this word meander is used by Paul in Ephesians 2. He used it because he wants to, to contrast our lives before we turn them over to Jesus and then after. Paul is saying that before we receive Jesus Christ into our hearts as our Lord and Savior... We were just meandering through life. That is, we really didn't have any eternal, again, key word, eternal purpose to our lives. 
we really weren't going anywhere. Now, sure, we thought we were. We thought we had all kinds of purpose before we received Christ. I mean, uh, but in the eyes of God, there was no real purpose to our lives. We were just wandering from one mundane activity to the other. So Paul says that we were once just meandering through life, listen, according to the course of this world. Again, the word world, cosmos, means this fallen world system. The very thing Jesus said at the end of John 16, he had overcome and has empowered his people now to overcome as well. The word course is an interesting word in the Greek. It has its root in the Greek word for weather vane, weather vane. A weather vane is also called a wind vane because it points in whatever direction the wind is blowing. So the idea that Paul is communicating to us is that before we knew Jesus, we were being blown in whatever direction the prevailing philosophical, ideological, and moral winds of this fallen world system were blowing. In other words, whatever the latest trend or fad in fashion, music, technology, morality, we, would, we were just simply swept up by it and we'd flow right along with it because that's who we were. We were being carried on by the you know, course of this world, uh, being blown in the direction the world was taking us. God, I said at first service, this has always been true. I've never seen a time in my life or in this nation's history where more people had given themselves over to groupthink than ever than, than right now. It's amazing. You turn on the TV and any false, ridiculous position somebody holds, as long as they are a well-known person, whether it's a politician or a college professor or a professional athlete, musician, whatever it might be, if they aspire, no matter how weird the thing is, it's like common sense is completely being thrown out the window. But if some well-connected, powerful people have embraced something, pretty soon everybody thinks it's great. I mean, look at the riots in the summer of 2020. And look at how all the woke corporations began to give money to Black Lives Matter, which is now, they're missing 60 million of these dollars. Well, we don't know where they are. In fact, we don't even have anybody that runs the, the thing. It's a scam. Or this, the um, Winter Olympics going on in Beijing. I refuse to watch one second of the genocide games. But everybody thinks this one male who identifies as a female swimmer. It's a great thing. The poor girls who worked so hard to get to the Olympics... Because he's a man, he's wiping them out. He's beaten other women swimmers, born women, by 25, 20, 28 seconds. That's unheard of. And that's because men, I don't care what they tell you, are not the same as women. I don't care how they identify. Men have been created by God to be the protectors, the hunters. Uh, the ones that take care of their families, right? They have a bigger skeleton. They have more muscle mass. They have a greater um, uh, uh, lung capacity, heart bigger, because they need that extra strength. You let some guy who's been born a man identify as a woman, that's the end of women's sports in that field. 
But everyone's jumping on board. It's the greatest thing in the world. And if you dare criticize it, you're a homophobe or a transphobe or whatever it might be. And everyone thinks it's great. That's the way the prevailing winds are blown, right? The world is blown this way. Everyone jump on board. It's great. Now everyone's doing it. Come on. You know, a wise Christian mother said to her little boy one time, who was being ridiculed by the other children at school for not going along with them in their desire to do mischief. This kid was a little guy raised in a Christian home. He was, he was really upset by it because they're picking on him, making fun of him because he wouldn't be part of the crowd. His mother says something wise to him. He says, son, any dead fish can float downstream. It takes a, a live, healthy fish to swim against the current. She was no doubt thinking of Ephesians 2. Look, we were all dead fish floating downstream before we got saved. We didn't know it. We just floating around with the current of the world. But when we got saved, the Spirit of God moved in, and we realized we are to now go against the current of the world and live for the Lord Jesus Christ, which brings persecution. But we have to choose who we're going to love more, the world or the Lord, right? So guys, once again, to meander means to wander aimlessly or casually without any eternal purpose. And that is a description of how the unbeliever walks through life. They have only one appointment they have to keep, and that's with death. That's with death. The only life that counts, the only life that has eternal value in the eyes of God that only matters, what God thinks, but the only life that counts, the only life that has eternal value in the eyes of God is a Christian's life, listen, that is being lived and led, lived for God's glory and led by the Holy Spirit, a life lived on purpose. Purpose. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, Only a Christian has any sense of divine purpose and direction. For the Christian, every moment, every second counts for eternity and is to be used for the glory of God because you've been redeemed by Him. Then he quotes what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He paraphrases it. Where Paul said, you are no longer, you no longer belong to yourself. You were bought out of slavery with the precious blood of Jesus Christ to whom you now belong. Therefore, you are to live for him and bring him glory through the life that now belongs to him. And so once again, guys, your life and my life has been purchased by God and we are now to use it for his glory. Now that doesn't mean that you have to be involved every second of every day in some spiritual uh, activity. I mean, it doesn't mean that you can't go on vacation, enjoy a ball game uh, one day, uh, spend the afternoon talking to a dear friend you haven't seen in a while. doesn't mean any of that. God understands that, you know, uh, we need a little time to ourselves. We need a little time maybe for some fun and recreation. It's just that a Christian who lives their life day after day after day, wasting time and pursuing empty things that have no eternal value, this is what God is talking about. To quote the same author, he said, and I quote, Is every day being used to serve God because you belong to Him? Most Christians dilly-dally and frivolously waste their time on meaningless, empty things, wasting precious time hanging around watching TV or generally, generally sleeping their life away. If most Christians spread, uh, spend, excuse me, if most of us spend our employer's time the way we spend God's time, we'd be looking for a new job. Listen, Christian, you are living 
Uh, you are living for an eternal purpose. Every moment counts, end quote. Well, you know, the Lord Jesus said this in John chapter 9. He said in verse 4, I must do the works of him who sent me while it is still day. For the night is coming when no one can work. What did he mean by that? He was using day to represent our life on earth. He was saying while it's still day, while we're alive on the earth, we must, uh, we must um, do the work of God to its fullest. All right? Um, we must use every opportunity God brings our way to serve him. He said, but the day, quote unquote, is swiftly passing. And the night is coming, physical death when our service on earth will be forever over. As someone has said, there's only one life that will soon be passed, and only that which is done for Christ will last. Guys, imagine that the days of our life are like the worthless pieces of fake money that you might see used in a board game of some kind. Let's call this board game the game of life. All right, A game where God is letting you use your time, which inherently has no value it's how you spend it that determines if it's good or evil but god is allowing us to use our time to buy valuable opportunities to serve him opportunities that will bring you priceless eternal rewards in heaven the person whose time is spent on him or herself winds up with a worthless wasted life but the person who spends their time serving Jesus, listen, winds up with a precious life and a priceless eternity. You know, the great 16th century reformer, Philip Melanchthon, you know, said he kept a record of every wasted moment and took his list to the Lord in prayer at every night, confessing his wasted time at the end of the day, confessing these things to God. He wanted to learn how to use to maximize his time. And so he was cognizant of wasting time. At every, whenever it happened, he would write it down and brought it to the Lord, asking for forgiveness and grace to not waste any more of God's time because he belonged to God like we do. And I'll tell you what, God used him in incredible ways. You know, Moses, who wrote Psalm 90, says something in verse 12 I want to just mention. Moses said, so teach us, talking to the Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now you read that and go, well, teach me to number my days. I don't know how many days I have on the earth, Lord. Now, how do I number my days when I don't even know how many days I have? Well, it's very true, but I don't think he's saying that. Let me paraphrase. I think what he was actually saying is, Lord, teach me to make every day count. I don't know how many days I have on the earth. So teach me to number my days. Teach me to make every day count, because I don't know how many I have, so I want to make sure I use whatever I have for your glory, is the idea. How do we do that? How do we make every day count? Well, by walking with purpose and not wasting opportunities to be used by God. Turn to Ephesians 5 quickly. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 5, starting with verse 15. I'll read it to you out of the NLT, second edition. He says, so be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. 
Don't waste your time. Use it wisely. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly. Don't meander. <laughs> but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Live with purpose. You know, Paul is pointing out to us that evil times, this is important. Hear me out. Paul is pointing out in this passage that evil times create opportunities for good. Opportunities actually created by evil days. What do I mean? Well, Henry Ford, okay, you all know him, or at least know of his name. But Henry Ford said during the Great Depression, here's what he said, these are actually good times. The problem is only a few people know it. What others saw as tragedy, Ford saw as opportunity. In his case, the opportunity to make money. But the same idea is true for Christians today. Only the opportunity set before us is not to make money, it's to save souls. Look, we can look at what's going on in our country and fear and panic and get depressed. Or we can see it as a great opportunity. People are scared. The future's uncertain. That's the perfect ground for people to be open to the gospel. When things are going great, money is flowing, times are good, people don't need God. These are difficult days. Many Christians are terrified. But like Ford, let me say, in a Christian context, what others see as great tragedy, we can look at as great opportunity. Opportunity to save souls. These are good times. If we do what Paul said in Colossians 3.2, set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. Guys, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly in these last days to reach people with the gospel. But how effective you're going to be, how effective I'm going to be in reaching people for Jesus and fulfilling the ministry God has ordained for your life is going to be dependent on how sensitive you are to the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's the bottom line. And that will be determined by how much time you spend with the Lord in prayer and in His Word. Guys, let me just say it. We all want shortcuts. We, we live in a, a culture where we have instant this, microwave this, and, and whatever. We're used to getting things, you know, fast food. Uh, we're used to getting things really quickly. And we tend to bring that mindset into our Christian life. And we tend to think that being fruitful for the Lord is going to happen effortlessly. And quickly, that is absolutely untrue. Being fruitful for the Lord takes time and effort, just like it takes time for a farmer to go to grow real fruit. Got to cultivate the soil, plant the seed, water the seed, make sure the weeds don't grow up and choke it out. So a lot that goes into growing real fruit and harvesting it. And the same is true for our Christian lives as well. Too many Christians are lazy and want, they want to be, you know, uh, you know, a, uh, a Moses or a Paul the Apostle, you know, effortlessly, without any effort on their part. Now, listen, 
Let me just bring this to a close. I want to uh, I want to close with some personal application from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ when he said in chapter 17, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. We could paraphrase this based on what Jesus said in John 13, verse 1, to start the evening. He said, my hour has come. My hour has come. Now, of course, the Lord, in saying this, used the term hour to represent a moment in history, not a 60-minute period of time. Guys, I know a lot of you are discouraged, and maybe a lot of people watching online. You're discouraged because you've been praying for something for a long time, maybe for years. What do I mean? Well, you've been praying for a spouse to be saved for years. You've been praying for a wayward son or daughter, a prodigal child, to come back to the Lord. And it's been years. Or you're praying that God would give you a child. We have people, young couples in the church that are having a hard time getting pregnant. Or you fill in the blank. And you've been praying and praying and praying, and you've kind of worn yourself out in prayer. You've pretty much given up that your prayers will ever be answered. If that's where you are this morning, can I just encourage you to remember two scriptures? Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. God's got a time. God's got a schedule for everything he wants to do. And just because it hasn't happened yet God doesn't mean God doesn't intend to do it, whatever it is. That's why Jesus, the second scripture, Luke 18, 1, Jesus said, men, women ought always to pray and not lose heart. Because God has a time for everything he does. Look, and I've used this illustration before, bear with me. Don't forget about Zacharias and Elizabeth. Zacharias was a godly priest in Israel. Elizabeth, his godly wife. They got married, and like every young couple, they wanted to have a child. And so they tried to have a child. Excuse me, tried to have a child, prayed no doubt many times to have a child, and, you know, prayed through their 20s, prayed through their 30s, prayed through their 40s, maybe even into their 50s. And about the middle of their 50s, I think they kind of gave up hope of ever having a child. Now they're about maybe in their late 70s, early 80s. And Zacharias was in the temple one day off burning incense on the altar of incense, the golden altar that stood outside the Holy of Holies. And then something remarkable happened. The angel Gabriel appeared to him. Listen to what Gabriel says. It comes out of Luke chapter 1. I'm quoting verse 13. Gabriel said to Zacharias, Do not be afraid, Zacharias. If you see an angel, you get a little nervous. Okay? Do not be afraid, Zacharias. Listen to this. Your prayer is heard. Lord, we stopped praying for a child 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Your prayer is heard. Your wife Elizabeth is going to bear a son. You're going to call his name John. He's going to go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers, hearts of the fathers to their children. He will be the forerunner of the Messiah in the fullness of time. 
look, I know some of you are discouraged because of unanswered prayer. But guys, listen, very shortly, <laughs> your time might come. It might be your hour to see God work and answer that prayer you've been praying for for so long. Didn't Joseph pray for 13 years after having been falsely accused by his brothers, sold into slavery to Potiphar, an Egyptian commanding officer? Ten years in Potiphar's house as a slave when he was a free man, didn't deserve to be a slave. Served Potiphar with all of his heart, but he was away on the affairs of state a lot, so that left him in the house with Potiphar's wife, and she wanted to have an affair with Joseph. And so one day she grabbed him by the coat and said, you're going to lie with me, and Joseph wheeled out of his jacket ran for his life. She accused him of trying to rape her. They threw him into prison. Three years he was there. He had prayed and prayed and prayed, interpreted a couple of dreams for some guys, butler or baker. Came true exactly as he said. Uh, was it the baker? But the butler was restored to the king. The butler, um, is that the right? Was it the butler who was restored? And the baker who, no. Jo Joseph said, you know, the one, you're going to be restored in three days. That's what your dream means. You'll be, you'll be giving a pharaoh the cup in his hand. Baker thought, well, that sounds pretty interesting because I had a similar dream. I'd like to know what you have to say about me. Gave him the dream. Well, that's not good news. <laughs> Three days, your head's going to be lifted off your shoulders. But, you know. But, but he said to the guy, the other guy, the butler, look, when you, I don't belong here. When you go stand before Pharaoh, tell him about me. Guy forgot. How did he forget? It wasn't God's time. So God gave the guy amnesia. You know? Which makes me feel better. When I forget stuff, now I just say, well, it's God leading me. But anyway, two full years passed until Pharaoh has a couple of dreams that really trouble him. And the butler says, oh, I, I remember my sin. <laughs> Thanks, pal. There was a guy in prison. And so they bring Joseph out, right? And Pharaoh tells him his dreams, and Joseph interprets his dreams. And Pharaoh was so taken with this young man. He had his tattered prison clothes removed, gave him the robes of state, made him third in the kingdom, prime minister. When Joseph got up that morning, he never in his wildest dreams, I'm convinced, ever thought his prayers were going to be answered. And, not, and answered in a, such a spectacular way. We have to understand this, okay? Paul said these stories were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope in our own situation, right? Guys, let me just fin with, end with this. God has got a timetable for everything he does. I think we've established that. A timetable that is often quite different from our timetable, right? God, you got to work now. Lord, if you don't work now, it's all everything's going to be destroyed or whatever God's never in a hurry he's got everything planned out he operates according to his divine timetable so guys be patient keep praying and trust that God is never late his timing is always perfect one last thing and we'll close I know this the Lord has created you and I listen to me for such a time as this this is our hour. 
when it comes to serving Jesus Christ. Just like Esther, Mordecai, her cousin, said to her, Esther, if you don't stand up for your people, God will bring deliverance through some other quarter. But you will have missed out. And how do you know that you haven't been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this? Do you realize, guys, in 2,000 years of church history, we have been chosen to be the generation to close out the church age? I'm convinced. You think about Peter, Paul, the apostles. They were chosen to start the church age. And we have been chosen probably to close it out. This is our time. This is our moment in history. This is the time we must step up, stand up for our Jesus and say, Lord, here I am, use me like Isaiah did, right? Well, maybe God doesn't want to use me. <laughs> the eyes of the Lord go to and fro about the face of the whole earth looking for someone whose heart is right with him, loyal to him, that he might show himself strong through. Guys, God wants to use you more than you want to be used. But you know what? When God has a work to do, he doesn't reach up to the shelf where old Harry is gathering dust because he's not really going to church, reading his Bible, uh, walking in the Spirit, just, just you know, got his fantasy football. I'm sorry. I, I, don't, I don't know if anybody's got a fantasy football. I'm not saying that's evil. I don't really know that much about it. I know it's a time waster. But when God's got a work to do, he doesn't reach up to the shelf, right? And dust old Harry off and give him this work to do. He's looking for people who are moving in the spirit. Who are serious about serving him. Guys, this is our hour. This is our moment in history to shine. To be a light. We must, like Jesus, say to our Father in heaven, Father, my hour has come to glorify your name through my life, right, on this earth. Father, break me. Empty me of self. Fill me with your spirit. And use me for your glory. Because that's all that matters. It doesn't matter which political party is in power. It does, but... Not really in the light of eternity. It doesn't matter what enemies of conservatism and Christians and what they're plotting and planning. I don't care. My God is sovereign. He's on the throne. Man can do his worst. Man can plot his plots. But God will make even the wrath of man to praise him. He's going to be victorious. And he wants to use us to show this world that he is a omnipotent God and that with him nothing shall be impossible are you ready to report for duty I am and we'll see what God will do Father we thank you Lord for your great love wherewith you loved us we thank you Lord that you saved us but you didn't just save us that we not go to hell you saved us that we would walk in those works that you ordained in eternity past that we should live uh, work them out and, and, and use them for your glory. Lord, we thank you that you have allowed us to live at such, a, at such a time as this as Christians. Give us grace not to waste this time, Lord. The opportunities are too much, too many. Give us a heart that wants to capitalize on every moment that, where we can be used by you for your glory. Father, we thank you. 
We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.